If God didn't save Abraham, and if he doesn't save you on the basis of your obedience to the law, then there is no violation, no wrath, because God saves us on the basis of his grace. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 4 of our study in the book of Romans, and in a message entitled, The Religion That God Hates, we've been looking at the false teaching that was going around the first century, and which has really been present in all the centuries that have followed, that salvation is through not only God's grace, but also through some external ritual like circumcision or baptism. Our study is in verses 9 through 17. And as we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he explains that these rituals are not a way to salvation. Rather, they are an outward sign that we have been saved. By symbol, when one is baptized, we are confessing the sufficiency of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so like a, a signpost, what we are saying is, I have uh, placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I... Um, uh, was working on a doctorate, you know, you, you spend, a, it's a, like a three-year program, and then you write this dissertation, and then you can go through all of that, and then you have to defend your dissertation. And if when you defend your dissertation, it's not defended well, wasted three years. It happens. It's kind of a scary thing. So I'm there in, in, you know, in prayer and fasting and shaking, and God, God helped me to defend this, because the people that I was defending it to at the time in the seminary I was attending was going moderate to liberal. And the Southern Baptists had not yet cleaned up this seminary. And there were some people there who did not like me. And so I defended my dissertation and by the grace of God, because of one particular man who was on that board, he said, you may differ with Mr. Brogy on a lot of these issues, but these are local church issues, and we as Baptists believe in the autonomy of the local church, so you cannot use this as a basis for condemning his dissertation. We must grant him approval, and they did. So they said, you are now Dr. Brogy. Now, I was Dr. Brogy at that moment, but it was about three weeks or a month later, I don't remember exactly, that I walked in the aisle, and they handed me a diploma, and we took our tassels and we turned them and they said, you know, all the rights of this institution are now confirmed on you. And they gave me that diploma with a seal on it. And that followed. And the same is true with salvation. First you are saved. First Abraham believed. 14 years later, he was circumcised. That's the argument here. And the same would true, be true with baptism. Let me put it in these terms. Look at this ring on my finger. This ring is an emblem that I am married. Now, if I wore a ring without being married, you'd say, why are you married? The ring doesn't marry me. God marries people. What God has joined, Jesus said, let no one separate. It's just an emblem. Now, raw as it may sound, there are people who will climb into bed with someone to whom they are not married with, married to, wearing the ring. What does the ring symbolize in that sense? Nothing. Just a, a tarnished piece of steel or gold or whatever your ring is made out of. You see, God doesn't look just at the symbol. God looks at the heart. 
That's what Paul's argument here. Abraham was not righteous by his circumcision. His circumcision was just the sign and the seal of what God had done in this man's life. It was a sign in that when you went through that bloody little rite, as he did as an adult man, he was confessing his faith in the sufficiency of the blood that would be shed through Messiah. It was the seal, it was the confirmation, the authentication that his faith was genuine. Now look at verses 11 and 12. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. That is to say, he was saved before he was circumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That is, he's the father of believing Gentiles who have never taken this right to their male bodies, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision, verse 12, to those who, are not, who not only are of the circumcision, that is naturally born Israelites, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. That is true Jews, Jewish Christians, who like Abraham have exercised genuine faith. Again, this is identical to what Paul has already argued here in chapter 2. Now, don't lose me. This is the meat of the word, and I know I can see some of you just fading. You're just, you're losing it. Listen, gird up your loins for action. Even if you don't get it all, get all that you can. This is the meat of the word, and, and God wants you to get it. Abraham's first step was faith, which led to his conversion. His second step was not internal, but external. It was circumcision. It was on the outside. It was simply the sign and the seal. Now, that's the first point the morning, this morning, the folly of trusting in religious rites. Now, the second will go a little bit faster. Let's look at verses 13 to 15, where we think about the folly of trusting in religious rules. Having shown the, the folly of trusting in religious rites, symbols, emblems, so forth, he now moves to the folly of trusting in religious rules. Paul knows that there would be people who would either look to their circumcision or to their obedience as a basis for their being made right in God's sight. Note first that God's promises for salvation have to do with belief. That's the first thing I want you to get in this section, that God's promises for salvation have to do with belief or with faith. Now, beginning in verse 13, he teaches us that the promise that God made to Abraham was not in any way, shape, or form contingent on his obedience to the Mosaic law. That this salvation that God gave to Abraham had absolutely nothing to do with the do's and don'ts of the Mosaic law. Again, he's trying to get them to think. He's trying to get us to think. He says, just think about it. It didn't have anything to do with the law. Why? Well, number one, the Mosaic law didn't yet exist. Moses comes 250 years after Abraham. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants like you and I and other Jews who believe, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so Paul is drawing a sharp contrast, not this, but this, not through the law, 
but through the righteousness of faith. So he's no longer now just asking questions and answering them like he's done in the early part of this chapter. He's just spelling it out plain and bluntly. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world, what promise is he referring to? The one he quoted in verse 3 and the one he quoted in verse 9 in shorter form, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Going back to Genesis 15, that Abraham believed in the coming Savior of the world, that that promise was given to him, it was conferred to him, not on the basis of his obedience to the law. That is not what made him an heir of the world. By the way, this is a little bit different. Here he's called the heir of the world. You go back and you read Genesis 15 through 17, and God makes a promise to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant concerning a land, a seed, and a blessing. And the land, in terms of its geographical boundaries, are very carefully spelled out in Scripture. People ask me today, do you think the Jews should uh, abandon or give up half of Jerusalem? Absolutely not. Why? Because God gave it to them. Now, the Bible prophesies in Zechariah 14 that through a war, that city is going to be split in two. And after that happens, Messiah will come and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. And that people are even talking about that today is absolutely astounding because this is what the prophet Zechariah centuries ago predicted. But people ask me, do you think that's their land? Absolutely. Should they be compassionate to the Arab in the land? Absolutely. Because God reminds them that they are to be compassionate, that they once too were aliens in a land, and they needed compassion. And so he tells them that they are to show compassion to the alien and the stranger in the land, which I believe they are trying to do. But now he says, you're not just heir of the land, you're heir of the world. Why? Because Abraham is directly related to Christ. And so as the time unfolded, God made all kinds of prophecies concerning Christ. Isaiah 9, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Or in Psalm 2, the father said of his son, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And so if you are of the faith of Abraham, if you have believed in the same Savior that Abraham has believed in, then you too, like Abraham, will be an heir of the world. Because the Bible extends that promise to every believer. Jesus said, The meek will inherit the earth. Paul writes to the Corinthians, all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And when we come to Romans chapter 8, he will say every believer is a co-heir, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, that we will inherit all that the Father gives to Jesus because we are members of his body, we are going to study, we're going to inherit those blessings. So having clarified what the promise is, Paul now underscores here that this word that came to Abraham didn't come as a command, but as a promise. Follow carefully. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham came in faith. He believed the promise, and so faith was credited to him as righteousness, at which time he came, became heir of the world. 
Now, don't forget what he's trying to do in this chapter. He's reminding us that the message he is preaching is not something new. It's as old as the Old Testament, as old as the law and the prophets. And that this man received what he did because it was not something that God said, do this and you'll get it. God said, believe it and you'll inherit it. And so God's promises come on the basis of faith. Secondly, God's precepts after we're saved have to do with behavior. God's promises for salvation have to do with belief. God's precepts after salvation have to do with behavior. He wants us to understand that the laws of the Mosaic Covenant were given to a redeemed people. That they were given to people who had already come to faith in Yahweh. They had already come to believe in the Lord God. That those laws were given not to get them saved, but they were given to teach them how to live that they might be a witness to the rest of the world. And the same is true under the New Covenant. The laws that God gives his people today are not given to get us saved, but to allow us to enjoy the blessings of salvation and to become the person that God created us to be, to be a witness to a lost world. Now look at the word of explanation in verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. If you have to obey the Mosaic law, Paul is saying, to become an heir of righteousness, then faith is, is made void, the promise is nullified. Literally, it's been destroyed. Paul is saying you cannot have it both ways because something cannot be given and earned at the same time. Promises are given, received by faith. But precepts are to be obeyed after you have exercised faith. And so Paul is saying, listen, if God made an unconditional promise to Abraham and he did, then he could not at the same time add conditions to it. Law language like you shall and you shall not demands our obedience. But promise language demands our faith. Obey this commandment and I will bless you. That's law language. But God says to Abraham, I promise to bless you, so believe my promise. And then after you believe, obey. For the law, verse 15, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is no violation. Now, this is a favorite verse used by liberals to take the Bible out of context to make it say something it does not. There are liberal Protestants who say that Jesus is not the only way to God. And this is one of the popular verses that they use. That people who have no law, no Bible, are therefore not under the wrath of God because they don't know any better and therefore they have not violated God's statutes. You know it cannot mean that because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And Paul has already taught in Romans 2, 12 to 15, that Gentiles who have never had a Bible, who do not have the law, have the law of God written in their hearts, their conscience alternately accusing or defending them. That while they may not have a written Bible, they have God's law written into their hearts. He's just trying to make a very simple point here. He's reminding us that the law does not save. The only thing the law does is it brings wrath. When you broke the commandments of God, you saw that you were guilty, that you are worthy of God's wrath. He's already said that in Romans 3, for through the law comes the knowledge, the awareness of sin. And so we've already discussed in our series of Ro in Romans through Paul that the law was not given to save, 
The, uh, the law was not given to save. It was given to, to show us what sinners we were. The law was not given to uh, so that if we obey it, we can be made right. It was to show us how wrong we were. It's like a mirror. You look in a physical mirror, you see your face is dirty. You look into God's mirror, you see your soul is dirty. One reveals the outside, the other reveals the inside. It was not given to redeem you, it was given to reveal you. And so Luther said it so well when he said the function of the law is not to justify but to terrify and to lead you to faith in Christ. Paul will say in Galatians 3, the law is given not to save you, but it's a schoolmaster, it's a teacher to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. For the law, Paul says, verse 15, brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is also no violation. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, if God doesn't save on the basis of law, and he certainly didn't save Abraham on that basis because the law had not yet been written. If God didn't save Abraham and if he doesn't save you on the basis of your obedience to the law, then there is no violation, no wrath, because God saves us on the basis of his grace. For this reason, verse 16, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace that the promise may be guaranteed. Now, Romans eleven six 6 says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. In other words, what makes the grace of God the grace of God is you do not merit it. And Paul says, for this reason, our salvation is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace that the promise may be guaranteed. He's saying, listen, the only way grace can intersect is with faith. Because of the nature of grace, it can only intersect with faith. Grace doesn't intersect with works. Grace and faith intersect together when a man believes God's promise. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed. The old New American Standard, if you have it, says that the promise will be certain. You know, I talk to people all the time. I say, are you saved? They say, I hope so. I think so. I want to be saved. I, how certain are you? Well, I'm close, but I'm not there yet. And then I'll talk to other people and they'll say, well, no one can know that they're saved. No, he is saying here, because it is by grace, through faith, apart from works, our salvation can be certain. It can be guaranteed. Put out in the margin, 1 John 5, verse 13. These things John writes, I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope, wonder, but know for certain because it's guaranteed because it comes by grace through faith. People say, Pastor, no one can know they're saved. And the reason they say that is because in the back of their mind, they're not sure they're good enough. And the point is, you're not. We're all ungodly. For this reason, notice, stay with me. It is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to who? To all the descendants. To all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, meaning Jews who trace their physical descent back to Abraham, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, that is all believers, Jewish or Gentile, who is the father of us all. The only way Abraham can be the father of all nations is if all nations are saved on the same basis by grace through faith. And then he substantiates what he has said with some scriptural support, just like it's written, a father of many nations I've made you. Not a father of one nation, but a father of many nations. 
Now, how can we apply this passage today? Let me suggest a few applications as we close. Number one, I would ask you this morning, is your faith in some religious rite, some religious symbol, or is your faith in some command to obey? Is that what you're hoping for? Either your obedience to the law or some symbol that you've taken on, is that what you're trusting in to save yourself? You know, I meet people all the time, and you do as well, that say, I'm going to heaven because I've been baptized, I've been confirmed, I'm a good father, I'm a good mother, I keep the tent golden rule, I follow the Ten Commandments, all kinds of things. Listen, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And Paul is dealing with Jewish people who had their faith either in baptism or in circumcision or in their obedience to the law. And they had all this outward stuff, but their minds and hearts were a million miles away. And we have not changed in thousands of years. People today who draw confidence in external religion. But Jesus said, you must have internal religion. You must be born again. Secondly, not only would I ask, is my faith in something or someone other than Christ, I would ask you this morning, are you sharing with people a religion that God hates? Are you sharing with people a religion that God hates? You see, there's a lot of people who think as long as you have some religion, everything's fine. You meet people like that, right? Those say, oh, my kids aren't Christians. One's a Hindu and the other's of the Baha'i faith. You know, as long as you have some religion. Listen, when someone makes that statement, that's, those are the expressions of a lost man. There is religion that God hates. That was not an overstatement as a title to this sermon. And of course, Paul deals with this error in the book of Galatians. You ask the false teachers who are in the Galatian church, are you saved through the blood of Christ, through the death, burial, and resurrection? Yes. But in addition to the blood of Christ, you must be circumcised. They added one single work to the finished work of Christ. And they were messing up the Galatian believers, not in terms of justification. They had believed, but in terms of sanctification. They, so Paul takes them all the way back to the way they started, and he reminds them the way they're sanctified is the same way they're justified, by grace through faith. And so um, I'm on the Bible line one day, and a man calls in and wants to know if this church over the state line, if they are preaching the Bible. I said, well, they're, they're, they're preaching the Bible, but they're not preaching the gospel. Now, most weeks when I go up to the Bible line, all I carry with me is my Bible. And I don't want to forget that because I need my Bible. But that's what I bring into the studio. But on this particular day, in the providence of God, I, I brought my staff notebook with me because I had some questions I needed to speak with Rick about. And so this call came in, and in that staff notebook was this handout that I had from this particular church and the question comes, and it had been in there for a year, and I pull it out because, you see, I hate to say something about a church or a pastor that doesn't represent him because it happens to me all the time. People say, Carl Brogy believes such and such, or Community Bible Church teaches so-and-so, when it's not true. And so I said, well, let me just take out, I happen to have it here in front of me, let me take out their doctrinal statement. And so there's a section in it. What are the biblical purposes of baptism? 
And then they proceed to give the answer. The purposes of baptism, they say, are number one, for salvation. And they quote Mark 16, 16, what we've read today. Number two, to enter the kingdom of God. They quote John 3, 5, you must be born of water and the spirit. And they take water to be baptism and it's not. And number three, they say for the forgiveness of sins and they quote Acts 2.38 and then they go through this big long litany of things and then they summarize their purposes when they say, when you are baptized, you number one, put on Jesus Christ. Number two, wash away your sins. Number three, have the forgiveness of sin. Number four, you're saved. Number five, you're made free from sin. Number six, you benefit from the death of Jesus Christ. And number seven, you enter the body of Christ. Is that true? No, it's not. Now, I'm certain there are believers in that church. I, I don't doubt that. I, I don't doubt there are believers in that church. And they're there largely in ignorance. I had one come into my office after this event took place, and he was so mad at me, and he said, you misrepresent. I said, I read right out of your own doctrinal statement. We don't teach that. He said, here's our Sunday school literature. And I opened it up and started flipping through it. Oh, yeah, here it is here, baptismal regeneration. Yeah, here it is, baptism saves. Here it is, baptism for I didn't know that was in there. Now, there are believers in that church who are misinformed. But if you believe that doctrinal statement that they teach, what I'm talking about is what we're talking about today is not what God has said. This is what God is saying. Because this is an error prevalent. I was at your dad's funeral in, at that reception and a man came up to me from the Church of Christ and he's filled with questions and he, he wants to know why I don't believe baptism saves. And Anthony, I told him we'd get together and we'd speak with him. Paul says to the Galatians, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by his grace. And he, of course, in the context of the book, he's, he's speaking in reference to their sanctification. They knew what the gospel was. So he takes them all the way back to justification. He says, listen, if an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a gospel different from the one that I have preached, let him be accursed. I say again now, as I've said before, if anyone comes, any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one which we have preached, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. It's a very strong word. You could paraphrase it. Let him be damned to hell. Why? Because it's religion that God hates. Because God loves the salvation of souls. And God hates a way of salvation that is different from his way of salvation because no one can come to the Father but through the Son. So what are you relying on today? And are you preaching a religion that God hates? It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what does the Scripture say? Now, our Father, I know this has been a challenging passage for us today but help us to understand not only what it says in its original context, but how you would help us to apply it today. I pray today for someone here who has put their faith in baptism, in confirmation, in membership, in something other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Help them today to see that the doctrine of grace does not frustrate, but it releases and brings us great freedom Freedom to know that we are accepted and freedom now to obey and to live our lives out of gratitude. God, help someone in simple faith today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 
To listen again to today's study entitled, The Religion That God Hates, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM19. And be sure to get information on our upcoming Search the Scriptures trip to Israel, May 11th through the 22nd. Dr. Brogy will be taking a number of STS listeners on an amazing trip through the Holy Land. All the details are online at stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow we begin a look at the faith of Father Abraham, part of our ongoing study in Romans. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.